0: your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and I'm asking you to reach for an ink pen or a pencil because today I believe you're going to want to underline a few things and you are definitely going to take notes. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 12. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, the apostle Paul writes these words, but I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me now, if you have an ink pen or a pencil, underline that phrase, the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Then notice what he says in verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the what? Palace. So now we find out in verse 12, something has happened to the apostle Paul. And he says, "I would not have you to. Be, I want you to understand, brethren, the things which have happened unto me." How many of you know that sometimes in life things happen that you did not anticipate? And now something has happened to the apostle Paul that has landed him in a prison, and he says the prison is in the imperial palace. At the particular time that Paul wrote the book of Philippians an epistle which is called the epistle of joy. Everybody say joy. Joy. And the reason it's called the epistle of joy is because Paul writes about joy 19 times in the book of Philippians. And when you consider Philippians, is only four chapters, and for him to write about joy 19 times in four chapters, this obviously is one of the highest points in his theme. And when Paul wrote the book of Philippians... He had recently come to the city of Rome. After he wrote the book of Philippians, he was later put under house arrest. But when he first came to the city of Rome, Paul was incarcerated in a prison which was called the Mamertime Prison. Now, if you're taking notes, I would write that down. And if you consider yourself to be a researcher, it would be very good for you to go on the internet and look this up. Or even better, buy my new book called A Light in Darkness where I really chronicle the Mamertine prison. And in fact, there are 75 pages of footnotes in this new book. And so what is written about the Mamertine prison is completely footnoted. It's documented. The Mamertine prison was one of the two worst prisons in the entire Roman Empire. In fact, the two worst are both in the, book, in the New Testament. One was the Isle of Patmos where the Apostle John was sent. And the reason that Paul was, John was sent to the Isle of Patmos was because right in the very middle of the city of Ephesus, there was a huge square which was called Domitian Square. And the middle of Domitian Square, the Emperor Domitian had erected a temple to himself. The temple was so magnificent. It was 300 feet long. It was 120 feet wide. And there was an entire priesthood that served in the temple of Domitian. And the only way you could survive in the city of Ephesus was if you at least tipped your head to the statue of the Roman emperor Domitian. And history tells us that the apostle John came into the city. He did not live in the city. He lived just outside the city. In fact, it's a very interesting study to see where John lived. You know, most of us in this day and age, we think how horrible it would be if you had witches or someone in the occult. As your neighbor but in fact John lived in a house which was located on top of the hill right behind the temple of Diana which we call the temple of Artemis it was the most wicked temple in all of Asia Minor and in fact when you stand on the brim of that hill where the Apostle John lived and you look out John would have looked right down on the roof of that hideous, hideous demonic temple. From his home he would have heard the music of that occultic music day and night. He would have seen the smoke whirling up from the sacrifices that were offered on the altar. And John saw this every day. This was John's view. Now you may say, why would John choose to live there? Because that is not the place where you would commonly go to look for Christians. And so it was a very good hiding place for John as he provided oversight for all the churches of Asia Minor. People could come to him and he didn't have to go into the city where he would be arrested for not worshiping an idol. But on one of those days John came into the city of Ephesus, probably walked right past the theater, came right to Philosopher's Square, which is exactly where was the school of Tyrannus where the Apostle Paul had taught nearly 30 years earlier turned left walked up the ancient Curtus street up to the giant square of Domitian and there in the giant square of Domitian was the temple of Domitian and history tells us a soldier was watching when John walked past an idol of Domitian and John didn't tip his head in worship of that statue so sometime later there was a knock on his door. And when John answered the door, standing in front of him were imperial soldiers who arrested John and who transported him to the city of Rome where he stood trial before the emperor Domitian himself. An early Christian legend, but the problem is it's a legend repeated so many times by such great leaders, it really should be taken as fact. We are told John was ordered to be thrown into a vat of boiling oil. Well, normally when you would cook someone in boiling oil, it's kind of like cooking a chicken. After a few minutes, the skin begins to loosen from the bones until finally there's nothing left but bones. Then they drag the flesh hook through to grab the skeleton, to grab the remains, and to pull it up and show the remains of the person that has been boiled The only problem was in this case, when the flesh hook came up out of the oil, John was riding the hook as it came up out of the oil and was completely untouched by the flames, completely untouched. And the emperor Domitian was so horrified at this man that he could not kill that he said, get this man out of my sight, take him to the isle of Patmos. Patmos was an open prison. Once you were deposited on the Isle of Patmos, you basically roamed for the rest of your life. There was no fresh water on the island of Patmos. There were very little trees on the island of Patmos. It was basically just a big rock. And on the very peak of Patmos was a temple to Artemis or a temple to Diana, the very same temple which had been in the city of Ephesus. And where do you suppose John lived while he was on Patmos? He lived in a cave that was under the temple of Artemis. It seemed he could not get away from this temple. And while he was in that cave, living there with his associate whose name was Prochorus, John suddenly found himself in another dimension where he received the book of Revelation and Jesus literally stepped into that cave and John saw what no other eye had ever seen. It tells me it doesn't matter where you are, Jesus is able to meet you where you are. But Patmos was a horrible prison. The second prison which I'm going to mention and it was actually the worst of all prisons was in the city of Rome, and it was called the Mamertine Prison. And the Mamertine Prison was located in the very bottom section of the imperial palace. And that's why Paul says in verse 13 that everyone in the imperial palace has come to know of the gospel because of my bonds. Paul was literally on the bottom level of the imperial palace. And the prison was not originally constructed to be a prison. In fact, it was a cistern which was designed to collect water... And then as time passed and Romans became more sophisticated, it became the septic tank which collect the sewage from the imperial palace. So when we talk about the Mamertine prison where the apostle Paul was incarcerated, we're talking about a septic tank under the imperial palace which is designed to collect all the sewage, all the toilet water, everything stinking and foul that's come from every quarter of the Imperial Palace and the majority of people who were incarcerated in this prison never escaped from this prison they died for several reasons first of all because of breathing the toxins day after day after day and in fact the toxins were not just bad because of the sewage when people died in this particular prison their bodies were not retrieved their bodies were allowed to float on top of the sewage and just rot, which was very convenient for the rats who would crawl all over the top of the sewage in order to eat sewage and to eat human remains. And so just by being incarcerated there, breathing the fumes, breathing the toxins, people could die. Interesting that the apostle Peter was incarcerated there once for nine months Nine months. When we have the book of Philippians, Paul had been incarcerated there for two months. 60 days he had already been held in this place. The other reason that people died in the Mamertine prison was because there were no chairs. You couldn't sit because it was all sewage. You couldn't lay down because it was all sewage. So they would chain you with your hands above your head, And finally, when your body became so tired of standing, the prisoner would begin to droop. Finally, he would hang on the chains, and the chains, which were rusted because of the environment, would begin to cut into the flesh of the victims, and the victims would then form limb rot, and their body would literally begin to rot as they hung on the very chains. The other thing, which was a horrible, horrible death, was the rats which were scavenging around the top of the sewage and across the human remains. And when they found a live victim, they would begin to eat the live victim who could not defend himself because his hands were chained above his head. And in fact, this prison was so notorious, I just want to read one little thing to you from my new book, which is documented in early Christian history. Listen to this. Of the most famous Roman prisons, one that can still be visited today is located at the the bottom of the Capitoline Hill in Rome beneath what was once the Imperial Palace. Early tradition states, Paul was incarcerated in this horrifying place on one occasion. When the Roman historians described this prison, they wrote, When you've gone up a little way toward the left, there is a place about 12 feet below the surface of the ground that is enclosed on all sides Above it is a chamber and a vaulted roof. Neglect, darkness, and stench make it hideous and fearsome to behold. Listen to this. It was one of the most dreaded places in the entire Roman Empire. Prisoners were forcibly hurled into this underground chamber. And when the doors slammed shut, they were plunged into utter darkness. To be kept there in isolation until they were either executed or died of torture or starvation only rarely was a prisoner ever released and given his freedom if tradition is correct paul was confined in this very place then listen to this statement it is believed that those who died in this prison were cast through this very door a door into the tiber after their corpses had been displayed for several days on the steps leading into the upper chamber of the prison rats roamed through the prison feeding on sewage and dead bodies yet not thrown into the river Chained to the chamber walls, the prisoners couldn't defend themselves against the rats that would often chew on their arms, fingers, and feet. It was a grim, disgusting, brutally painful place. This was the condition of the Mamertine prison. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Because it was from this place that he wrote the epistle Of joy now we all tend to think from time to time that we've got it pretty bad in life (laughs) have any of you just honestly felt like life is not all it's cracked up to be have any of you ever just wished you could wrap things up and just exit planet earth and just call this deal done Well, when you come to Philippians chapter 1, Paul had been in this miserable place for two months. It was very rare for a man to survive two months inside this prison. But what made the difference for Paul was that he was a Roman citizen. Everybody say, Roman citizens. And when you were a Roman citizen, you had privileges that other people did not have. For instance, if you were a Roman citizen, you were guaranteed the right of food. Maybe not much food, but you were guaranteed a little food every day. If you were a Roman citizen, you were guaranteed the right to receive mail one time a month. If you were a Roman citizen, you were guaranteed the right to write a letter one time a month. And now Paul has been dropped into this hellish place where he can smell the stench of human bodies that are decaying. The majority of the day there is no light. His hands are chained above his head. He can hear the rats as they're scavenging across the sewage probably trying to brush them off with his legs so that they will not begin to eat him and finally one day his privileged day came when he was permitted to receive mail and through the top of the hole in the chamber A Roman soldier was lowered down into the bottom of the Mamertine prison carrying a torch and carrying a parchment. He stepped into the sewage and slushed over to where Paul was standing with his hands chained above his head. He reached up and unlocked Paul's hands. Suddenly Paul's hands fell to his side. I want you to imagine what it would feel like if your hands had been habitually chained above your head and now your hands have fallen and the blood is rushing into your limbs, the pain that you could have felt. And the soldier puts the torch into the eyes of Paul. A torch may not seem very brilliant to us, but when you've been standing in complete darkness, a torch would be a light so bright that it would be difficult to look into the eyes of a torch. And he listens as the soldier says, Sir, you have mail. And he hands a scroll or a parchment to Paul. And there Paul, with his hands that are numb, with eyes that are straining to see in the light of this torch, he reads that he has received a letter from the church of Philippi. And as he reads this letter from the church of Philippi, he sees that they have sent him an offering. Now, you may ask, and it's logical to ask, how could you send anybody in that condition an offering? Well, Paul was a Roman citizen. And because he was a Roman citizen, it meant he had a box. And people could put money into that box. So just in case he got out, he would have something to start his life with again. Every Roman citizen that was incarcerated also had that privilege. So when Paul read that they were praying for him, and not only were they praying for him, they were putting money on the table. They were literally putting money into the box, this was the best news that he had heard for 60 days. Number one, it means somebody knows where he is. Imagine the hellish thoughts that went through his mind during those 60 days. Does anyone know where I am? And in fact, when you read the book of Philippians, it seems he only had contact with two people in the outside world, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Besides that, Paul was completely in total isolation. But now he gets a letter, and he hears the church of Philippi is praying for him. And not only are they praying for him, they're believing for him. How does he know that? They put money in his account. If they put money in his account, it means they're believing he's going to come out of that place. And that is why his words in Philippians chapter 4 are so important. He writes to them and he says, I have received the offering which you sent me in the hands of Epaphroditus. And do you remember what he called the offering? He said, it is an odor of a sweet smell. It was the sweetest thing he had smelled for 60 days. That offering brought a fragrance into that hellish place. And it was from that place. That he wrote to believers in the free world and said, Rejoice in the Lord always. How often? Always. This man had a pulpit from which he could speak. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. Over and over he says, I joy, I rejoice. You are my joy, you are my crown. 19 times. He talks about joy in this book. Now, you may wonder how in the world could a man in this situation have such a good attitude? Well, I don't know that we can be sure he always had a good attitude. But he eventually came to a place where he had a victorious attitude. And if you look at verse 19, look what he says. He says, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Do you see where he says, for I know? In Greek, it is the word I repeated twice. You don't have to do that in the Greek language unless you're really trying to drive home a statement. So now we find that Paul is really basically talking to himself. For I, I, I know, I know, I know it, I know it, I know it. He's speaking to himself, just like sometimes we have to speak to ourselves. He says, for I know that this, the word this refers to the predicament that he is in. For I know that this, my situation, will turn to my salvation. The word salvation is the Greek word sozo, which in this particular case would be better translated liberation or release. I know this is not the end for me. I'm coming out of this place. I know it, I know it, I know it. I will be released. How does he know it? Because of your prayers, and the what? Supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay, are you all with me? Everybody say supply. Supply. What does that mean? The supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Well, the first time I studied that word supply in Greek was in the year 1983. 1983. And when I opened my Greek New Testament and read this word supply, I was completely baffled because if you translate it literally, it makes no sense whatsoever. The word supply is the Greek word epikoregias. The word epi, E-P-I, means on behalf of, as if you're going to do something on behalf of someone else. The second part of the word is choregias. The word choregias is where you get the word for a choir or a choreography. Koregias. So this is getting a little stranger the longer we look at it. First we have the word epi, which means on behalf of. Then you have the word coregias, which describes a choir, or a choreography, or a theatrical musical production. And when you compound the two words together, they form the Greek word epikoregios, which literally translated means something that has been done on behalf of the theatrical production. Now, this is the problem with translation. This is what Billy was talking about in the earlier service. If you translate this word exactly, you will not understand this word. It would literally be translated. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and through the action that was carried out on behalf of the theatrical musical production of the Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So when you come to a word like that that is so unique, then you've got to dig a little deeper to find out why in the world did he use this word? Where did this word come from? And you've got to remember that the Apostle Paul was a very intelligent man. There was not one word he used that he did not use for a specific reason. Just like the Hebrew text, you can stop on any word in the New Testament, and if you open any word... It will give you an entire picture all by itself. So where did this word epikaregius come from? Where does the word supply come from? And why did Paul use it in this verse? The word supply, epikaregius, some kind of action which has been performed on behalf of a choir or a theatrical production. Where did that come from? Here's where it comes from. The first time that word was ever used was when there was a huge theatrical production in ancient Greece. And the people that were involved in the production had trained and they had prepared and they had given everything they had for this production. And just when it was time for the show to go on the road, the director came, said we have exhausted all funds We have depleted everything that we have. The show is canceled. The show is over. And a wealthy man, a benefactor, heard about their situation. And when he heard they had trained and were prepared, when he heard that the show had suddenly been canceled, this wealthy man stepped forward and epicuragius, he gave a gift on behalf of the choir, and what he gave was a supply, so magnificent. That they didn't know how to use the funds. It was above and beyond anything they could have ever dreamed. But when he gave them the supply, suddenly they were re-empowered. So the show could go back on the road again. That's where the word supply comes from. So when Paul says, I know I know it I know it I know it I know that this this place where I am is not my fate it is not my destiny I know this is going to result in my salvation my release my rescue I know it number one because you're praying for me and number two because of the supply of the Holy Ghost which means and here was the source of his joy Jesus, like a great benefactor, had stepped into that hellish place and Jesus had come slushing through that sewage and come to Paul. And figuratively, it was as though Jesus had said, You may have thought this was the end of the road for you, but let me give you what you need. And Jesus gave him a new supply, a supply. Of the Holy Ghost. And suddenly Paul was so empowered. That the next verse. He begins talking with great boldness. About Christ being magnified in his body. And notice he says at the end of that next verse. Christ is going to be magnified in my body. Whether by life or by what? Death. Life or death. Now let's pause just for a moment. Paul, in that place, was really closer to death than he was to life. And that's why he writes in the next verse and says, To live is Christ and to what? Die is gain. As far as he was concerned, it would have been a lot better just to pack it up rather than live in this situation. To live is Christ, but hey, the idea of dying is a pretty nice thought at this moment. To die is gain. And then notice what Paul says in the next verse. He says, what will I choose? Now that is an amazing statement because it appears that Paul had in his hands the power of choice, whether he would go on living or whether he would pack it up and die. He says, what shall I choose? The King James Version says, I wot not, which means literally I don't know. I'm still making my mind up on this question. And then he says this in verse 23. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Do you see where he says I'm in a strait? That word strait describes a tug of war. On one side is life, on the other side is death. Paul was in the middle. And he's not just thinking about death. He is surrounded by death. He is in a prison where human... Limbs, rotting bodies are laying all around him. And the bodies will continue to lay in that prison until the tide gets high enough to wash it all out into the local Tiber River. And until that happens, Paul is going to stand there among those decomposing dead bodies. He is completely surrounded by death. And he says, I'm in a strait between two. I am the rope. And on one side, life is tugging on me. And on the other side, death is tugging on me. I'm in a strait between two. And then he says, having a desire. The word desire describes a great intense desire, which means this is not a fleeting thought. He's been in this prison long enough to really think it through. And if he really could do what he would like to do. He would just pack it up, say, let's go home, say, death, take me, and get me out of this place. In fact, look at how he describes death. Having a desire to do what? Depart. And to be with Christ, which is what? Aren't you glad it's far better? But the word depart was a greek word which was used in two ways first of all the word depart was used when a roman army had been fighting for a long 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 time and finally the last battle was finished and it was time for them to break camp and head home so in one particular way paul could have said i am so tired of this i've given everything i have fought my final battle I am ready just to pack it up, break camp, and go home to heaven. But the second way this word was used, depart, was to describe a ship. A ship that's sitting in stagnant waters. It has no movement. It's not going anywhere. You've got to set the sail and let the sail catch the wind. And the wind then drives you onto your ultimate destination. Paul was literally saying, I'm tired of being in this stagnant place. I think the greatest thing of all would just be to set my sail and catch the wind. And let the Holy Ghost take me home. But then he says in the next verse. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know I shall abide and what? Continue. Continue. Everybody say continue. continue. Which means it's not time to quit until it's time to quit. Now go to chapter three. Chapter three, verse ten. What a remarkable statement! Paul says that I may know him, that I may know the power of his what? Resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Well, let's talk about that verse for a moment. Paul says that I may know him. Didn't Paul already know him? Of course Paul knew him. That I may know the power of his resurrection. Paul already knew the power of the resurrection. In fact, by this time, Paul himself had already been raised from the dead. He knew the power of the resurrection. Paul knew a level of power like none of us have ever walked in our lives. In fact, when Paul was ministering in the city of Ephesus and teaching every day in the school of Tyranus, the Bible says the anointing that was operating on him was so heavy that God performs special miracles by the hands of Paul. When you read that special miracles in the Greek language, it describes Paul falling into something that took him off guard, took him by surprise. It was a level of power he had never experienced at any other previous moment in his ministry. He fell into a flow of power that took him off guard and completely by surprise. And in fact, that level of power was so high that even his clothes were saturated with the anointing of God and people were coming from all over Asia Minor to take pieces of his clothing and even his clothing would drive out demons and would cure infirmities. So Paul knew power. But then in the following verse, he says, if by any means... I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now keep in mind where he is, what he's thinking. He's close to death. He's deciding now he's going to live. He's not going to break camp. He's not going to set sail. He's going to abide in the flesh. He's going to continue. Everybody say continue. <sighs> But in order for him to continue, he has got to move into a level of power like he's never known ever in his life. Because only real resurrection power is going to lift him out of this place of death. And in fact, when he says, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead, he's not talking about the final resurrection of the dead. The Greek says that I might experience an outstanding, a standing up in the midst of all of this death. And what do you think Paul was doing in that prison? When he was so close to death, why do you think he decided he was not going to check out? Because he did a review in that solitary place. And if you look at the next verse, he says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Count not is a bookkeeping turn. It describes a bookkeeper who has two pages in front of him and both pages have different numbers. One page is the projection or one page is the vision. The other page are the actual numbers. And Paul said, brethren, I count not. I've looked at the pages. I've looked to see. And when I look at the original projection, everything that God told me to do, everything he anointed me to do, and then I look at what I have actually done I haven't attained. I've not finished what God has told me to do. He could have said, I've started more churches than anyone else. I'm the walking embodiment of divine revelation. I've done what no one else has done. But that is not what mattered. He had not fulfilled everything on that page of projection. So he said Here's what I'm going to do. Forgetting the things which are behind. I'm going to reach to the things which are before. The word forgetting describes something that has become obsolete. Everybody say obsolete. Obsolete. Let me give you an example. How have you learned to type on a manual typewriter? Do you remember those old days? Trying to wind that ribbon through all those little nicks and crannies and looking at your finger covered with black and red, and then you're typing and you're hitting that thing, working on that manual typewriter, and in its time and in its day, it was so advanced. But then we progressed. And we came to the electric typewriter, and oh, 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 you could type at lightning speed when you had an electric typewriter. And then... IBM produced the Selectric typewriter, which had a movable ball so you could change the font while you were typing. In one letter, you could have multiple fonts, take it on, take it off, take it on, take it off. And then, so you didn't have to use whiteout chemicals anymore, they developed a the little white-out button, and wow, now we can hit that button and correct our mistakes. Technology is just flying right in front of us then the computer came along, and I had a Macintosh, of course they were all laptops, and mine stood about this tall, it's about this big square, and I was writing, 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 that's back when I was writing Dress to Kill. I bought a special suitcase for my laptop computer became my laptop. I'd put that huge computer in that case, throw it over my shoulder. It was so heavy, I broke the blood vessels in the top of my shoulder. And I'd walk through airports carrying that computer. I would come to flight attendants and plead with them to please let me bring it on board. I'd come to the hotel, take it out, open it up, set it on the table, sit down and write, save everything on my little floppy disk. And wow, I was so sophisticated. This technology was just amazing. (laughs) And now everything has changed so radically. Technology is changing so fast that the New Yorker magazine, I just read an article that said ten years from now bookstores will be out of business because everything will be iBooks. Everything will be on the internet. People who do just books are going to be in big trouble 10 years from now. People don't carry books, so please buy my new one as fast as you can. (laughs) That's a truth. Most people don't even carry Bibles. What do they carry? Their telephone it's all right there I was preaching in our youth service one month ago i had been preaching every week in the youth service and there was a girl in the front row I thought she was texting somebody every single week the whole time that I was preaching I got so hacked off at this girl I came off the stage and thought if she is that rude to text in front of me while I'm preaching I'm going to do something I said Give me your telephone. I want to see who it is that's so important you're texting while I'm preaching. I picked it up and looked, and it was the Bible. She was with me. Or let me give you another example of something that's become obsolete. How about back in the days of the Egyptians? When everything they wrote was chiseled into the wall of stone. (laughs) Would we all like to carry stone tablets everywhere we go? (laughs) And then everything got really sophisticated. And they start writing on papyrus. And then when the city of Pergamum decided to build the third largest library in the world, it made the library director in Alexandria angry that he had a competitor. So he stopped sending them papyrus. And in the absence of papyrus, they developed something called parchment, which led to illuminated manuscripts and led to scrolls, finally led to books, which led to the Gutenberg Press, which brought us to where we are today. all of it was progress you couldn't have had papyrus if you hadn't started by writing on stone if they hadn't written on papyrus probably they would have never written in parchment if they hadn't had parchment they could have never developed illuminated manuscripts if there were no illuminated manuscripts probably there would have never been the Gutenberg press if there was no Gutenberg press today you would not be holding the Bible that is in your hands But how many of you know that if we stopped at any point along the way, we would have become obsolete? Does everybody understand? And when Paul is now in that prison looking at his life, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I obviously have not fulfilled the vision. There's still more for me to do, so I'm going to forget what's behind me. He's not talking about sin. He's talking about his accomplishments. It's his accomplishments that could have stopped him that would have caused him to be satisfied. He said, I'm going to forget it all. I'm going to put it behind me. That was yesterday's victory, not today's. It's old already, therefore it is obsolete. I'm going to put it behind me, forgetting the things which are... Behind, the word behind is the same word Jesus used when he spoke to Peter and said, get thou behind me, Satan. It is the equivalent of Paul saying, I'm going to tell my successes to get out of my face that they will not stop me. And I'm going to reach forth to the things which are before. Paul came out of that prison. He died almost 10 years later. That last 10 years was his most effective ministry. What if he had given up sooner? He would have missed the most productive years of his life. He had to make a decision. I'm not going to stop until I'm done. And finally, the last letter that he ever wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he was finally able to say these words I have finished my course. Nothing left on the list. I've done everything he asked me to do. Now, now I'm ready to depart. And friend, I want to tell you it doesn't matter what you faced in your finances what kind of struggle you've had in your home life. Maybe like Pastor Happy said in the first service today, you're discouraged with your church because half of them are late to every service. Get your eyes off of all of that. You need to look at the list in front of you and say, have I done what I was told to do? Have I done what was told to do?